Hello and welcome to Freightonomics, this week's edition, where we're going to talk about all things lumber. But first, we have some breaking news as well. But first, before even that, <laughs> let's introduce ourselves and get acquainted uh, because it's been a minute since I've seen you last. Anthony Smith, lead economist at Freight Waves. Um, and I'm Zach Strickland, director of Freight Market Intelligence. We've had yet another you know, week <laughs> in the freight markets, of course, being what they are, extremely tight. We haven't seen any significant changes there. July 4th happened, uh, did what it does. Capacity tightened a little bit over that little period of time. But in relation to the overall market, we stayed, you know, I guess somewhat consistent, yeah. <laughs> consistently tight uh, with everything. And July, we've seen a little bit of easing over the last few weeks. Traditional kind of summer. I, I don't even want to call it a lull, Anthony Smith. And <laughs> the word traditional is yeah. a whole other. I mean, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but yeah, this is Freightonomics. I'm Anthony Smith, lead economist here. And today's title, Uber Big News. Uber, big news. <laughs> we have Uber, big news. Uber, big news. We have a really great show lined up here. We also have um, a little bit of economist-heavy show on the latter half of things. I'm excited about. I'm into but it. I'm about it. We got to jump into the big story here. Yeah, yeah. So we've got. Well, you know, traditionally we have this, you know, flow of the show where we talk about some memes, but this story is so big. Yeah. And so grand, you have to lead with it. Uh, the the fact that Uber. Freight to acquire Transplace for $2.25 billion. <laughs> so I have a lot of questions here, Zach. Yeah. <laughs> so Transplace and Uber Freight. Yeah, they're not small. They're not small. And would you say they're two on two different sides of the equation here? Or is it like one more on the supply side, one on the demand side? Uh, you know, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to say supply-demand when mm -hmm. you're talking about these two entities. You've got one Uber Freight, 3PL. Uh, which is no assets. Um, they are brokerage heavy. Basically, they connect the uh, a digital brokerage. Yes, a digital brokerage. So they're they're working on technology to connect the asset, uh, you know, carrier side with the shippers shipper community, and the idea is to you know more efficiently, you know, manage their freight yeah. transportation. <laughs> uh, but. It's not from like a consistent basis. This is kind of a, you know, spot market heavy situation, very transactional in the Uber side with the 3PL. Not that they don't have consistent business and consistent customers. Uh, Transplace, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they manage your transportation. They are a 4PL uh, in transportation lingo, uh, essentially saying, we are going to be your transportation provider. One-stop shop, essentially. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna take all your transportation. We're gonna be, we're managing your transportation. Whereas some shippers have internal departments that do all of this. They're saying we'll do it for you. Uh, you know, maybe the, the gross majority of it or some section of it. Uh, Uber is kind of more that transactional mm -hmm. side of things. So there, there's some synergy here, um, yeah. and I think it's an interesting transaction. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during these <laughs> negotiations just to see what both sides are thinking. So um, I want to say, it was maybe it was last episode, but a recent episode we were talking about, of course, AAA Cooper and Knight Swift. And if that made sense, were the synergies? I think those were one of the big questions you, we were asking you kind of give your feedback on. This one, I think, in your mind makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, this one has this one actually has synergy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, operational synergy, in it, or at least the opportunity of operational synergy. So in my mind, and it's not necessarily 
I think it's the nature of the uh, you know 4PL, 3PL business. I think they work a little bit better together. They're natural fits uh, in general, whereas LTL and truckload, even on, I think to the outside observer, it sounds like a natural fit, but operationally yeah. speaking, couldn't be more <laughs> misaligned. Uh, we're not, <laughs> you know, and I, we, we already covered that last week, but and, and again, we have to always acknowledge the fact that these are financial transactions. You know, these are, you know, this one involves a private equity company offloading at the end of its cycle. Uh, TPG, I believe, uh, you know, close to the end of their five year, you know, most private equity firms. I, I don't want to assume that this, they had a five year target for yeah. uh, offloading this, but most private equity cycles are three to five year targets. You know, that way they create, you know, they do whatever they do over the three to five year period add value to the company, then sell it at a multiple of its value. Right. And that is that is more the case here <laughs> than in uh, the AAA Cooper acquisition. That was more of an asset-based provider trying to kind of diversify their business uh, a little bit while also offloading cash. Right. Like they have abundant cash. They can't go out and buy enough trucks to offload all this cash. So uh, very different transaction, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess, in terms of the back. Uh, back end of things so but still very good news for transportation like it's almost like everybody's getting more active within the transportation space in terms of financial you know value they see the value there most of the time we're talking about tech companies yeah. <laughs> even though uber freight may consider themselves somewhat of a tech company uh this is two transportation entities merging and i think this is actually it makes a lot of sense one because transplace now gets the uber brand right Everybody knows Uber. Like yeah. everybody knows Uber in the United States. Right. I don't. I don't think that's a question. So the marketing value is, is inherent. Like the Q score of Uber is, you know, Tiger Woods in golf. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody recognizes it, good or bad. <laughs> uh, Transplace, uh, or I should say, Uber Freight gets, you know, kind of this, uh, the internal mechanics of a well-oiled machine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Transplace, a very. Uh, High functioning, 4PL has a nice, strong customer base. They know how to do uh, their business well. You know, about I, I want to say a five to six hundred million dollar uh, company. Which again, kudos to the private equity firm offloading a high end. This is normally like this. It's the hardest part. Yeah, is once they reach this level, selling off at that at a multiple of five to six hundred million is not an easy task. Right. So that I think that's actually the biggest story here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, outside of all the, uh, you know, the internal transportation uh, synergy here is the fact that, you know, where they were able to attain, you know, a multiple of that value and offload into the space. So I think that's big news. Too. The hardest part. And, and so there's a part here that I, I really want you to kind of dissect for me, like whether this is just executive talk or if this is actually meaningful. So we have course, an article on our FreightWaves website. Of course, if you haven't checked it out, check it out. We have all the breaking news there. Of course, you can scroll down, go to careers. It, everything's there on the FreightWaves.com website. But there's a part in the story that says, this is a significant step forward, not just for Uber Freight, but for the entire logistics ecosystem. This is by Lior Ron, head of Uber Freight. Do you think this is indeed potentially something that's good for the entire logistics ecosystem, or is this just executive talk? A little bit of both. <laughs> I, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna take the middle ground. I don't. I, I would say something polarizing, but it's not. It's just not there. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it is overall good for the logistics space in the term that we were talking about M and A. Like we continue to talk about M and A within the transportation space. Like I said, 
valuations are there. Transportation traditionally not something that M&A firms and private equity, I mean, private equity is all throughout the space, but private equity at this level, not a big thing. Again, we're still talking about that tech 3PL space, so yeah. not the asset side, um, but the fact that it is happening within the context of transportation, I think that is big news, and I yeah. think that is good for the space. Uh, but at the same time, is it huge and going to revolutionize anything like internally? Nah. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's things to be gleaned. Uh, I think Uber obviously has a lot of technology. Like they have the resources to kind of experiment and do it and take a little bit more risks. Yeah. Obviously, they got a lot of leeway. They have not made money yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, Transplace makes money. Solid Entity uh, has a lot of experience within the space in general. It will help Uber Freight. I think the two of them together make a lot of sense uh, if they do it right. <laughs> so that was, that was my other uh, question there. It's like a lot of the criticism around digital brokers, especially Uber Freight and all these other entities, the profitization, the profitability there. Do you think this helps drive that that profitability or is that even going to be a big, I guess, uh, <laughs> I don't know, is it going to be a priority, you think? I, I think I think profitability has to be a priority at this yeah. point for Uber Freight. They they can't they can't sit around. I think that's why they made this purchase in this deal. They're buying revenue. Yeah. They're buying profitability at this point. Not a bad move at all whatsoever. I do not fault them for that. Um, and you know, to me, it's sort of you know, it's a shortcut, uh, but it's a really smart shortcut if you can take it. Yeah. Um, I don't know, and I can't speak to their technology uh, in detail because I don't know it. <laughs> Uh, but I do know that Transplace obviously does have a lot of experience in the space. They have experimented with similar technology. Everybody that's heard about digital brokering, <laughs> yeah. you know, knows that it hasn't exactly materialized in the way that a lot of people thought it would. Essentially, like a, you know, an algorithm that predicts that helps you load match is what it's is really what we're talking about here. Uh, digital brokerage. The, the problem with it is that everybody kind of look, I mean, from the outside looking in, doesn't understand there's a lot of complexity involved in a broker going and identifying a carrier for a shipper. Yeah. Uh, there's carrier vetting processes in terms of how much freight can you handle? Are you, you know, what's your customer base already? What's your network look like? Do you have any credit issues, service, you know, problems, et cetera? And that's part of, there's a lot of, things in there that you can't digitize. <laughs> yeah. Like there has to be some level of human interaction in a lot of those, especially when you're talking about 3PLs and freight brokerage in general, because a lot of those have small carriers in them. These right. smaller one to 20 uh, truck fleets are pervasive. I mean, that's really, I mean, they need the 3PLs to really get them moving and get them out there in a lot of cases. So they don't have a lot of digital footprint in the space. So the idea that you know you can get out there and just all of a sudden use the internet yeah. <laughs> or some sort of uh, mathematical equation and say this carrier works for you better than the other well they don't exist in on the grid as much as you think it does so transplace you know they operate within a little bit bigger sector in terms of larger carrier larger shipper connection but they have a lot of experience with the smaller carriers as well and smaller shippers um, that i think will help propel Uber Freight, at least get them moving in a better direction faster. Got it. Got it. And got to also mention right now we are streaming live. Um, if you're not watching, of course, watch on our TV platform. But if you are watching on LinkedIn, you're just popping up. Of course, you can uh, enter any comments in those chats, ask those questions, all that good stuff. 
feel free. Zach, I have to ask again another question here <laughs> around this deal because this is a big deal here. Um, with this happening, we see a lot of, you know, initial good news, a lot of, you know, this makes sense. Is there anything on your mind that's like, hey, this could be where it could all go wrong? Yeah, yeah. We can play devil's advocate here for a minute. I, I think anytime that you have some two entities of this scale merging, there is integration nightmare <laughs> awaiting yeah. you. Like there's technology, there's infrastructure there in terms of IT departments merging. There's culture clashes that, of course, every financial firm on the planet discounts. <laughs> Uh, if you cannot get along with the people inside of the organization, that is a huge problem and a huge uh, roadblock to uh, achieving profitability um, and making sure that your company works well. They don't all have to be hunky-dory and get along all the time, but if you can't merge those two cultures well, uh, it could be a total failure. Yeah. Uh, but I still think at the end of the day, even if something goes wrong to that extent, Transplay still has Uber's name yeah. and Uber still has a good solid, you know, undercurrent of uh, an operation in Transplace. So they would have to do a lot of work to really make this not make sense. Um, right. Yes, it could go wrong like anything, especially if say Uber comes in and starts trying to tell Transplace how to do their business. Transplace knows what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, however, need to be able to listen to Transplace in, in some regard as well. And hopefully they can kind of get an alignment which I don't think will be a problem uh, considering one has a pretty good track record and the other, of course, bought them for a reason. <laughs> yeah. And so talking about Transplace, if I'm not mistaken, they're also active in Europe. Is that right? Yeah, they have a global a global presence. As a lot of these shippers do. Yeah. So they, they you know, not necessarily, uh, you know, I don't know how to what extent uh, or percentage wise, but yeah, they definitely are in North America um, all I throughout. Uber a little bit. Because I don't, I don't know if they're in those markets, so that kind of gets them into those markets that they may not have been playing in already. Yeah, Uber's somewhat. I mean, they're they're a global company, they're global, man. yeah. <laughs> but they're they're not necessarily super active in in Europe. Gotcha, gotcha. So we also have another another big story here. It's earnings season. It's earnings season. Earnings Once season, again, we so just we closed have, a quarter. We just closed a quarter. <laughs> We're over halfway through 2021. Things are flying by. Zach, we have to talk about a couple of these earnings that just came out. Of course. Was the first one on the list was Covenant? Yeah, we've got Covenant. So yeah. local uh, truckload company, Covenant, very team heavy. They have a lot of different segments. Uh, I, I, again, we have to take these earnings calls with, we have to pull out a little bit of context here. Comparing Q2 2021 to Q2 2020, uh, a little bit of, you know, it's just like your economic indices like that we're talking about year over year right now. Like the COVID pandemic uh, outbreak period, in Q2, like that was the biggest disrupted like period that we've seen uh, to this year, like huge delta, yeah. <laughs> huge delta there. Uh, so they did see an 8.5% total uh, year over year increase in revenue, excluding fuel, mind you, which yeah. fuel I've talked about a lot. <laughs> uh, you cannot ignore that factor. Um, interesting fact here, their average tractors went down this year by 400, like 2,800 to 2,451 from last year to this year uh, in their earnings. Like if we pull up their uh, their spreadsheet here that I believe Todd Maiden uh, covered uh, on Freightways.com, feel free to check this out. So this is fascinating to me that we saw the tractor count go down yeah. year over year. And again, that some of that had to do, probably had to do with, uh, you know, the 
COVID pandemic expectations, thinking that they had to pull, glean back some of their fleet, didn't, you know, their OR skyrocketed. <laughs> I mean, they went from a 101 last year to an 89.6, uh, you know, or I'm sorry, 100 to a 92.7 for the logistics group, the truckload uh, group, I should say. So that's the asset side. Um, and that's like, that to me is like, they did it off less tractors. Uh, revenue quality here obviously improved. You've got your revenue per loaded mile and revenue per total mile up significantly. You got nine and 10% there respectively. Revenue per tractor per week, $900 better. It's everything operationally looks significantly better here. Um, again, got to keep in mind Q2 last year, not the best. We didn't see, there. yeah, we didn't see a lot of things there, but the fact that they're able to operate so a 92 OR in any period of time is great. And that's, and that's even more, I guess, significant because I know in our earlier episodes of Freedomnomics, we're talking about the operating ratios and mm-hmm. how crucial they are within just the space compared to other areas of, of the, the world's industries. I mean, you look yeah. at other manufacturing companies, you look at retail spaces, but you look at within trucking, logistics, things like that, the operating, operating ratio is so dire, like, the way we see yeah. that, how it kind of delineates between trucking logistics, of course, rail intermodal is a whole nother thing. But looking at the operating ratio, definitely a huge, huge yeah, and, jump and out ORs there. And, and a, you know, when you're looking at asset-based trucking, an OR between a 90 and 100 is traditionally where they are. So that you're talking about, you're making 10 cents on every dollar on a great year. Yeah. Uh, and they're making 8 cents on, or 7 cents on the dollar that they spend to move the freight, uh, to operate and continue to exist at 7% margins and yeah. we're, and we're celebrating it. I mean, and that's, a, that's asset-based trucking. Uh, you listen to some of these three PLs, they're talking about, you know, 15, 20% margins because they don't have assets to deal with. They can kind of ebb and flow with the market. Uh, they still don't control the assets, which is really their weakness. Uh, the glaring weakness of the three PL model. Uh, but it is a carrier's time right yeah. now at the moment. So, you know, I think they still have a good several months left of this cycle uh, left to go. So I would expect Covenant to continue to be a pretty good showing. Uh, but it is interesting. The most fascinating thing to me in Covenant, significant reduction in tractors. Yeah. And so we have a, another quick one to kind of jump into, but we also have some comments here on LinkedIn saying, uh, Greg McLean saying, great time to be a recruiter of Uber and Transplace. And he says, owner operators could make a great move here. Um, we have Heidi Hormick. Um, she's a driver for Swift saying, understanding Uber as a disruptor. They'll change how it's done. Not a huge Uber fan, but they know how to not get mired in the details. So sounds like the so far from the comments that there is some kind of optimism around the deal yeah. um, um, from that perspective. So looking at that, we also have to talk about the last one here, Union Pacific. Oh yeah, UP. So on the other end of the spectrum, we got the rail. Yeah. Uh, now the rail sector has come under a lot of criticism of late, uh, and they're generally always under fire from anybody that deals with <laughs> the rails because they have these ridiculous ORs uh, that we talked about. And uh, you know, we just talked about an asset-based trucking company making a 93 OR, and that's a huge success. Well, UP comes out with a 55.1 OR. <laughs> <laughs> so. You're making 45 cents on every dollar you spend yeah. uh, to move freight. Like it's like that is 
completely different business model altogether. It is so, the infrastructure is very static. Not a lot of flex there. Um, they come under uh, criticism for service issues because their speeds, you know, the way that they, you know, they are dedicated to operational efficiency. And that right. is because they are motivated by the financial sector to be as, the, they know that they can't grow yeah. a lot. There's not a lot of room there because rails are where they are. There's only so many cars you can fit on a train track. Um, and it's not like they're going to all of a sudden expand to a five lane wide railroad. <laughs> yeah. So they get judged on their OR moving down. And this is kind of my criticism of the, of the way that our financial sector kind of works at this point is at some point you, it becomes, you don't, you're not creating value anymore for the, the space. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're basically kind of, you're compressing, you're, you're creating value, you're pressing the provider to, you know, make themselves look more valuable. But in reality, they may not be creating actual value for the space as they don't service the freight as fast as the customers need. We see all these bottlenecks in supply chain lately all over the place. You know, and again, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be critical of the rail side at this point. It is, but it is their motivation to compress their ORs as much as possible, which means sometimes they don't cut the train yeah. as early as they need to because they need to add another, you know, several cars to it or they're waiting on enough freight or they're waiting on something. And again, not all of this is their fault because they got upstream bottlenecks as well at the ports, congestion at the railheads, you know, we UP specifically. Uh, suspended service from the West Coast to Chicago so they could just declutter the the rail yard. They've got all these containers sitting there. So it's, it's really looking at, like you said, they have to work with OR. That's what they're getting based, judged off of. So it's it almost like this incentive to yeah. do what they have to do in order to kind of get that number to where they want it to be. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know if, you know, UP's stock price is reflective of the overall value that they are presenting especially when you're talking about ORs in the 50s. <laughs> gotcha. Like that is just sheer profit for UP. Uh, you know, and it, it, it is, I think it does require, I think it is worthy of some level of critique. Um, you know, when you're talking about making, you're just not creating enough value there to, dick, to justify that kind of revenue. Got it. Got um, it. So one of the big things that we have going on as well on this show is that we have a special guest. Mm-hmm. I don't want to team up on you with another economist, but I got you. Go. So with an intro to this guest, I, I have to kind of talk about some of the econ news that's come out and then tee him up appropriately. So for example, we had retail sales, they grew 0.6% month over month. Cool, dope. A lot of people didn't expect it for some reason. I don't know why we had um, Amazon Prime Day that month. That was one of the things that we were calling for. Like, hey, Prime Days are in this month. This is going to happen. Um, so we were expecting a rise. We have a lot of stamina that's going to be tested in the coming months as, you know, credit card utilization is still low, but reduction in stimulus pay, uh, payment payments. Um, we also have uh, jobs claims kind of being stubborn right now. But so the next couple of months are going to be interesting. Uh, speaking of jobs claims, we had 419. So we take up the highest level since May. Uh, didn't want to see that. We saw industrial production up 0.4%. Um, since last month, it's likely going to moderate. We we're talking about that on uh, yep. a few shows ago. Like peaked, going to moderate around this area, but it's still really high. Still high, like, and still new orders high. are still coming in. Do we um, have the? Don't we have a chart? We have a chart. Have a chart um, I think industrial for production? industrial production. So, um, if we could pull that up, 
we would be able to see that there it is. industrial production and that blue line uh, starting to move down on a year-over-year -year basis, but still very much elevated. And in flat the green bed. line, of course, we have our flatbed outbound tender rejection index, which preceded that downward movement. So that was some of the things that we were looking at within Sonar, is that downward movement and rejections, if we can call it a downward movement, but a little bit slight loosening. <laughs> well, look at it. Look at it compared to the previous year. Yeah. It's still like, it's blown it out of the water. Exactly. Even though, you know, we, are, we always have to be very careful here when we talk about downward movement. Yeah. And, Everybody just inherently thinks, oh, it's everything's all the way back. It's still moving fast, just at a little bit of a less fast pace. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that, that peak up there, not sustainable. Exactly. <laughs> and so the other thing we have, of course, is non-defense capital goods, new orders, which is still humming along. And that's going to be another one that we're com doing a comparison with flatbed outbound tender rejection index mm -hmm. to see that there is still momentum there down the line. To queue up our, our guest here, um, we have housing starts that rose 6.3%. Permits were down 5.1%. I think there's a lot of slabs coming up and no starts. There's starts, but framing material isn't there just yet, um, especially with those pricey lumber um, that's going on. But talking about lumber, we have to talk about our, our guest here. He was my first economic mentor I've ever had. This is your guy. Came out of college. <laughs> he taught me a, a, a great amount of information was incredibly patient. This is just Dustin Jalbert oh, um, from Fast Markets Reese. Justin, Dustin, Dustin, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us today. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Zach. It's good to be on. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, thanks for coming out. So, Dustin, we got to talk about it. Out the gates, <laughs> lumber. I mean, we had so much news throughout uh, the last few months of lumber just kind of rising, 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 rising. Now, there's not as much headline activity. There is still a lot of headline activity talking about the reduced price, but what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've kind of done come full circle here with this pricing cycle for lumber. Um, you know, at the peak, we were at, uh, based on our random lengths, framing lumber composite price, uh, which our editorial team reports on a weekly basis. We were over $1,500 per thousand board feet uh, back in May when we kind of peaked out uh, in the market. And that was basically a fourfold increase over the span of basically 12 months um and you know as quickly as prices ran up they've gone down even faster than that you know now we're back in that sort of 500 to 600 dollars per thousand range depending on you know the, the framing item you're looking at within the span of two months so i mean it's been a quite a capitulation of the market here uh that i think a lot has taken a lot of people by surprise i mean we we suspected there was going to be a, a big correction. How quickly it, hap it happened, and you know, the timing was a little earlier than we expected. But um, we're really starting to see the market rebalance here, both on the demand and the supply side. When you're talking about what's happening in, in, in new construction and sort of the renovation boom starting to fade there, and then finally, I think the sawmills are just starting to get production ramped up uh, to meet this sort of soaring prices and profitability in the industry. Yeah. Dustin, I got to ask, like, you know, this huge drop you just mentioned, like that's, you know, I'm, I love the financial markets. <laughs> and so anytime I see a price decline at this rate, like, do you think that this was more of a correction to supply where the lumber mills, like you said, are, are starting to crank stuff out? Or do you think there was some easing in demand is, on that side? Or is it a, probably a combination? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's a combination of both. Um, you know, to break it down, you know, you meant start on the demand side. Um, obviously, when we look at, you know, what drives 
you know, wood products and lumber prices, it's obviously the residential construction market, right? Um, and when we look at housing starts, you know, Anthony just talked about, you know, we had a pretty good print for June. Um, you know, the new construction market remains very strong. You're, you're hearing a lot about the, the hurdled sort of uh, sort of sale, uh, the throttled sort of sales and production from the builders, but we're still, you know, kind of near cycle highs for starts. Um, where we're seeing demand cool, though, is on this sort of DIY renovation side of the market, which is a huge source of demand for, for lumber and, and, you know, OSB plywood in general as well. And, you know, when you look at what characterized the boom for demand last year, you know, this sort of DIY sector through the, your home centers like Lowe's and Home Depot was really kind of what carried the market early on as kind of new, new construction kind of uh, obviously you had a blip there early on the pandemic, uh, you know, and, and some of those sort of catalysts for that, that drove that boom are starting to fade. So when you think about, um, you know, the stimulus checks are starting to fade, you have this pivot from the good sector back to the services side as COVID subsides and the, the service side of the economy, uh, reopens, people are just stuck in their homes less. Uh, and there's also just sticker shock. I mean, how high, you know, how high prices rose in a short period of time. You know, some people just, you know, those projects got stretched beyond their budgets, even factoring in the amount that they were saving from, you know, not going traveling and service side of the economy in general and the stimulus checks. Um, so that is cooling. And then when you look at the supply side, the mills, like a lot of, you know, the, the manufacturing and shipping industry, like what you guys are seeing as well, there's been a labor crunch, right? Um, and the mills, not only have had a hard time getting people back to work, you know, getting them on site and getting them sort of operational. Um, it's also just been the positive cases at the mills. The COVID has forced, you know, uh, people to have to go home and quarantine, whole shifts of quarantine. And when you look at the, the production data, as well as the, you know, hours worked, you know, based on the BLS data, um, you know, that has really hampered production in the market until very recently. We've only recently seen hours worked and production in the industry ramp up uh, to, to kind of levels that we'd expect, given what we know capacity is in the industry. And it seems to have coincided with this, you know, sort of plummeting in cases uh, of COVID. And so, you know, the reality is the pandemic has been a significant negative supply shock on production. And we're just now starting to get that kind of surge capacity, we need to meet demand levels where they're at. So Dustin, I think you, that was a great point there talking about, well, a lot of great points there. <laughs> yeah. <first off. laughs> but definitely talking about the the amount of people back to work within those sawmills. Can you the tell DI, us a little bit? The DIY sector, like yeah. falling off. I know we talked about Home Depot and Lowe's uh, last time we talked, but man, they were, it seems like they were breaking records last year this time uh, as people were stuck at home. But I, I love the point about the price being a natural deterrent there. I mean, that you're talking about $1,500 versus $350, right. was it? Yeah. So that's, I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more just real quick about what goes into a sawmill? So throughout, throughout the pandemic, we've seen many industries just try to correct and really write the supply from lumber. From what I understand, there wasn't this immediate uh, attempt to ramp up because there's a lot that goes into kind of putting in place a new sawmill or really, I don't know, kind of unshuttering a factory that may have been put in place years ago. So can you tell us a little bit more about what goes into a sawmill and why there wasn't any kind of like immediate reaction within the industry? Well, you know, the, the industry has been adding some capacity. It's been at a 
pretty tepid pace over the last few years. And a lot of it is focused in the U.S. South. And that's really just because that's where the logs are abundant and cheap. Um, but on the flip side, you've had some curtailments uh, in more log constrained markets like in, in British Columbia. You've probably heard about the sort of the, some of the constraints there with there's an ongoing beetle kill and you have sort of wildfire situation that's ongoing there as well. Uh, similar store in the Pacific Northwest too. The log prices are higher there. Uh, and when you think about, you know, literally what goes into a sawmill, I mean, the, the biggest sort of component of your cash costs are the actual logs. Uh, so for lumber specifically. So, you know, the mills go where the logs are. It goes where the, the, the raw material is. Um, so, you know, we've, we've seen production ramp up in the South. Uh, but the, the problem is, you know, the industry capacity had a huge fallout uh, from the, the global financial crisis and the housing, you know, sort of bust, boom and bust. Uh, I think, you know, it's probably around, you know, 20 percent of the industry capacity was cut, you know, between 2005 and 2010. Uh, so we're still below kind of th those levels. Right. So our, our capacity is constrained to some degree. Um, you know, we are seeing new mills come into the market and, and some of those projects got delayed early on in the pandemic because there was so much uncertainty. And frankly, uh, everyone, in, ourselves included, expected housing, you know, expected housing to do poorly in the middle of a recession. That is obviously the opposite. Right. Um, but, you know, what's the challenge right now with ramping up new facilities, you know, basically from breaking ground on, on a, saw, a new sawmill to getting it operational it's it's taking upwards of you know 18 months maybe even longer to, to make that happen so you know we, we have seen a lot of announcements come into the market but getting that capacity in is going to take time uh, and then even once you start the, the mill operationally you know usually a lot of mills will, will have two shifts you know they'll start with one shift when they start producing and then they, they ramp up to that second shift but as you know we, we know there's an ongoing labor shortage so getting you know, these facilities manned effectively, particularly in the South, uh, you know, where a lot of the new capacity is coming has been really challenging. And so that, you know, those are those are going to continue to be constraints for the industry. They were they were constraints pre-COVID. They're kind of, you know, dialed to 11 during COVID. And some of that will subside as, you know, the, the labor market normalizes. But it's still going to be an issue going forward, you know, especially if we're, we're operating in a tight economy. Yeah. So. You know, the housing market itself fascinates me, uh, especially uh, during COVID, you know, unexpected boom there. And, you know, we've we've heard about the financial institutions getting involved in the real estate market, uh, kind of fueling that fire uh, for demand or whatever. Do you think that the house, I mean, we saw housing starts kind of come down a little bit. Uh, do, you, do you think that this is going to like this kind of persistence is going to remain in the housing market in terms of demand? Or do you think that we're going to see a, uh, a little bit more cooling off as we get closer to the end of the year? So, you know, I, I do think we're going to see some cooling to some degree, but it's coming off of incredibly high levels. Right. right. So, I mean, in our view, you know, there's probably going to be a little bit of like a digestion period for the, the builders to catch up. You're seeing this now that, you know, there's been, you know, ample, you know, sort of significant home sales. But a lot of them are on homes that have not been started yet. Right. So the builders kind of need to get caught up. Um, so we do think there's going to be some cooling. But the, the reality is we're in for a, a very strong decade for housing demand. The demographics are there. The millennials are coming of age in terms of, 
you know, that those prime home buying years when they start having kids, they get married. Um, and the reality is your space needs change. And, and, and so, you know, we were already seeing a lot of this migration out of the urban cores to the suburbs, the exurbs, and, you know, COVID has just kind of sent that into overdrive, right? So, um, especially with this work from home movement, which seems to be kind of sticky to some degree, you know, it seems like some employers are, are, are rolling with it. And, you know, presumably that improves sort of affordability prospects for buyers, right? So it's, it's, it seems, uh, you know, again, we're calling for it to cool, but I think the demand profile for the industry is going to be very strong for the next five to 10 years. And the reality is we've, we've underbuilt housing for the better part of a decade now. And so, you know, there's a lot of debate on what that deficit is, you know, is it, uh, you know, a million units, is it 4 million units? It, you know, it's hard to say, and a lot of it depends on the starting point for where you're calculating, but it's obviously significant. We see it in, you know, home prices, the home price appreciation. You look at vacancy rates, they're incredibly low. You know, that all points to the market is tight and we need to build more shelter. So, Dustin, that was a, a point that I meant to ask you about is with pricing, especially with builders right now, when we see lumber prices come down, can you talk to how long or if it's going to be a, a immediate or a longer term impact on when those prices actually start hitting those builders are really going to be impactful for those actual products coming online? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've heard a lot about uh, a lot of projects that have kind of gone off sides, kind of gone underwater in terms of penciling out with, you know, material costs going up. Um, that said, you know, a lot of those projects that have been off sides are more kind of have been more on, say, the, the commercial or multifamily side, you know, single family, you know, we've seen what single family home prices have been doing, you know, they're, they're up, you know, you know, 15, 20% year over year. And so, you know, again, when you kind of break it down, a lot of that cost inflation has been just getting passed on to the home buyer. I mean, and, and you know, you look at at least the, the major publicly traded builders, you know, it'll be interesting to see their reports, you know, the, the kind of the Q3 reports coming out now, but a lot of them have preserved or even seen their margins, their gross margins increase slightly despite the cost inflation. So, you know, I think um, the, the prices are problematic uh, for some parts of the construction market, but for the, the new home, the, the new home builders have been able to pass it on readily. It hasn't been as much about prices as it's been about availability, actually getting your hands on the material. And this is, I guess, you know, where it comes in, you know, with you guys on the shipping and, and the logistics side. In some cases, you know, there's so much demand for the material. People are willing to pay what they, whatever they can to get it. But it's just it's just either wasn't available or there's logistical issues, shipping issues. Um, and, you know, it's not just lumber now. Now it's, you know, garage doors and windows and, you know, obviously steel prices are soaring, too. That's another commodity. Our company, we, we cover the steel segment. And while wood products are, are rolling over, key construction steel prices continue to ramp, ramp up. And, you know, think about everything that's made of metal and steel that goes to a house, think about appliances, um, all of that. So, it is making it incredibly difficult for builders to plan, even though they're getting some relief on the wood product side. I think other material costs are going up and availability also is just a real challenge. Yeah, on that note. So, you know, you make a, I love the, the way that you're talking about how 
you know, they're actually being able to pass along these cost increases. Because we've talked with a few other guests about how a lot of commodities are not able to pass along these increasing costs. The inflation kind of gets buffered and, and, and sets in, but you're saying that these home builders are able to pass along these costs. And that's, I guess that's because it's a post build process. You know, it's like you've set the price of the house after you're done most of the time. I'm sure there, you know, people out there obviously have bought houses and then build it along the way. But there's probably some price adjustments going on there as well. That's that's a fascinating factor. So when we're talking about overall availability of commodities and people being able to bid those up, uh, do you think like how significant of a factor do you think logistics is playing in that inflation and that availability itself? Yeah, it's definitely a factor. And I would even say that for lumber specifically, I think the kind of the the big run we went on from, we kind of plateaued around $1,000 per thousand early in the year, kind of settled there. I think the market was kind of waiting to see if it was going to turn or pick up and it it really accelerated again. Um, You know, there were definitely sort of production constraints, but I would say, you know, from what we heard on the market, the, the shipping and logistics side was just as important, if not more important. You know, getting truckers was just a constant, constant challenge for the industry. Um, you know, more recently, we've seen rail shipments improve. And, you know, a lot of lumber is shipped via rail. And that's an important thing to consider is, you know, about, you know, 25 to 30 percent of lumber consumed in the U.S. comes from Canada. And a lot, most of that is delivered via rail. So, you know, some of the kind of the, the issues on the rail side had improved and we saw kind of shipments kind of ramp up significantly, say from March through May. Now with this wildfire season uh, kind of raging in British Columbia, we've seen, and I'm sure you folks have seen it, you know, rail shipments have, have you know, sort of come down some. Some of that is just, you know, the, the rail providers are kind of, um, you know, lowering the velocity of the trains just to prevent kind of sparks and things like this that can contribute to the wildfire. So, you know, all this, is incredibly impactful in the markets. And I think, uh, you know, we recently we just saw a major producer, uh, one of the largest producers of lumber in North America, announce that they're curtailing production given some of the wildfire issues and some of the shipping constraints that, they, that they're reporting right now. So it's a huge factor in the market. Um, the last thing I'll say, too, there's a lot more material coming from offshore, too. We've got more imported lumber. We've got imported plywood. Um, We've seen imports continue to, to come in steadily, so it doesn't seem like boat availability is an issue. But certainly, when it lands at the ports, we've heard about just absolute chaos. You know, getting the material offloaded and getting trucks to ship it from the you know warehouse, the port to you know the buyer, the wholesaler, and so I mean, it's just been chaos, right? I don't have to tell you guys; it's just <laughs> been a crazy market from a logistics and a shipping standpoint, and that that does feed into the price uh, out in the market. If you can't get the material and you have a, you know, a month and a half, two month wait time to get the material in your yard, guess what? Bidding, you know, you're going to have a, a you know, bidding's going to go up uh, and it's going to put prices higher on the commodity and lumber's no different. So Dustin, you just kind of mentioned there, I mean, we had this run up and all these, all these other things, prices are starting to come down, but you just mentioned fires and all <laughs> these other variables happening right now. So safe to say we're not out of the woods just yet. But Look at you. you see what I did there. <laughs> <laughs> Senior economist at Best Markets Reese, Dustin. I, what what else do you have coming up? Do you have an upcoming event? How can people get in touch with you? What's anything that's new and exciting going on over there? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, definitely uh, come check us out. We have an, uh, an event coming up, our North American uh, sort of forest products conference uh, out in September. So if folks are interested in that, please uh, connect with us there. We've got a lot of great experts that talk on the markets, uh, myself included, talking lumber. So, um, you know, if you're in the, the shipping transportation industry, come check out, uh, you know, some of our analysis there. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of clients who are in the shipping space who are interested, uh, you know, and come to these events. So good networking opportunity, too. Uh, and just generally, it's just, you know, Anthony, it's just been busy. Lots of lots of inquiries. You know, we we're just on the grind with our kind of monthly commentaries, rolling those out and uh, just trying to keep that forecast as updated as possible. It's been it's a crazy market to, to try and, uh, you know, sort of uh, forecast something right now, especially in the commodity space. So. Well, Dustin, thank you so much for joining us. It's my mentor here. My, I mean, my, he got me kicked off. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for your patience with me early on in my career and <laughs> getting me ramped up. I'm telling you, I would ask him the same question like seven times every single day. He obviously he, didn't. He's, he's exaggerating. He's exaggerating. <laughs> he's a great economist. So it was a pleasure to work with him. We miss him. So, <laughs> right on. Dustin, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to have you on again soon. Sounds good. Take it easy, guys. Thanks, Dustin. So, I mean, he obviously didn't have enough time to get those feelings out of you, though. <laughs> no, no. That, maybe that was a problem. Maybe I, that need was a send, problem. I need to send you back up there for a minute. Yeah, I mean, you... Northeast didn't break me. Yeah. didn't break me. But no, Dustin is brilliant. As you can see, uh, there's, I don't You know, real few... fascinating point about how we're importing more lumber. Like, I, you know, the, the concept that we, you know, obviously, North America has plenty of trees yeah. uh, in relation to the rest of the world. I mean, you talk about England who deforested centuries ago. Yeah. Uh, most of these European countries don't have the availability of wood products that we do in here in North America. So the idea that we're importing trees <laughs> is, is fascinating to me. And that also has to be a contributing factor to the fact that a lot of the infrastructure set up for movement of said lumber is not from the ports. It's internally it's yeah. north america centric itself so yeah i think that's probably playing a bit of a role in these flatbedders out there that traded in their flatbed last year for a dry van trailer sounds like they need to think about getting it back on the road yeah i mean it's a huge need for it now of course yeah. and yeah that's brilliant we're gonna have to have him on again and definitely keep up with him but zach i can't i can't we can't miss our whatonomics whatonomics so he was talking about the rail uh, being a big factor. And I think that's a huge thing to think about. Again, rail, uh, when you're talking about lumber and commodities like coal and things like that, that's a little different than what I'm about to show here. Uh, because largely we're talking about intermodal uh, here at Freight Waves. And in our, you know, we do track the commodities on the rail themselves, but the intermodal sector, obviously one of the fastest growing of the rail market. And if we pull up the chart uh, here that I'm going to talk about for Whatonomics, the O-Rail the outbound rail loaded volumes index that we have uh, available in Sonar. Uh, this is tracking the overall intermodal container volumes, uh, not necessarily the, you know, the coal and the, you know, all the gondolas and things like that where you have these open tops or maybe even some of the tank stuff. This is all intermodal and it's based, uh, and you can you know, break it out into the domestic and international sizes. So domestic uh, loaded intermodal volumes, way different than international. Yeah. Uh, if you were paying attention to freight waves now the other day, <laughs> I had to bring up a chart that divided this chart into domestic and, inter and international. International containers are the ones that, of course, come across the ocean 
That's getting all the pub about the container shortage. That's the international containers that are 20 and 40 foot units, largely manufactured overseas. Uh, and then they, they are owned by the shipping companies, um, you know, Maersk and, and 3M and all the, the organizations over there. And they control them. Uh, but they do get on the rail and move inland. Now, you're seeing a little bit of a dip in the O-rail volume here at the end uh, here over the last few months. That is in the international sector. And a reason for that, and this is where this index becomes extremely valuable, uh, especially for service transportation providers, is that if you were to pull this index up on the outbound Los Angeles side, because you can uh, break this out into different markets and regions of origin and internal, uh, or I should say inbound sectors, you can see exactly where these containers are moving, where you can find these you know, discrepancies where volumes are starting to come down. A lot of those international containers, Anthony Smith, are getting offloaded into warehouses right near the coast <laughs> because those shipping companies, like I said, there's a container shortage. Yeah. They're pulling it across the ocean. They want it right back across the ocean. So even before UP uh, suspended their service, uh, we could see that this was a trend that was happening well before uh, you know, UP was like, no, we're out. And of course, uh, we're talking about a lot of other rail providers having trouble clearing some of these containers. So rail volumes, rail loaded volumes in the United States, uh, extremely valuable for other service transportation providers as well to monitor because it transloads into uh, trucking and it creates more freight opportunities in other areas because capacity is constrained for the rails as well. And talking about mm -hmm. rails and UP, there was some news, if I'm not mistaken, around UP and services. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was talking about. So UP suspended service. Uh, big story uh, last week where they now have a big pile of containers sitting in Chicago. So one of the biggest intermodal, <laughs> you know, thoroughfares, junctures, whatever you want to call it, in Chicago. A lot of that freight that comes in on those, you know, from the ports of Los Angeles, Long Beach, from China, a lot of that freight gets on a rail, travels up the single largest lane in the United States on the rail, uh, Los Angeles to Chicago, gets up there, and then it gets transloaded and dispersed. Some of it may stay on the rail and move into the Northeast, et cetera, but a lot of it does get offloaded and moved into warehouses, DCs, or on a truck where it gets uh, you know, moved into the Southeast sometimes. Sometimes it stays up in the Midwest. Um, Big interchange there for intermodal volumes, and UP is just not able to uh, clear off the containers fast enough in Chicago. So they basically said Tacoma, uh, I believe Oakland, and also uh, obviously Long Beach, Los Angeles, all the services suspended uh, until we can get this sorted. Got it. Got it. So, Zach, I'm getting a little bit of a message here mm -hmm. from the team because you've picked out something for us. Oh, a couple of somethings for it us. Did. We skipped over it because we had to talk about the uber big news. We had to. <laughs> and it's the meme anomaly. Everybody wants their memes. <laughs> That's what they want. So I agree. I agree. Well, what? let's, let's kick it off. These are, these are both, you know, somewhat topical, but not really. These are kind of like, you know, my, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm just a messenger mm. of the meme market. And memes change every week. <laughs> <laughs> and these were the ones that, that probably poked out to me. And I feel like they are probably the most relevant moving forward. If we go ahead and start off with our first meme uh, of the week, this is <laughs> well done. Well done. It, it is. They got you. It's, they got baby, you. it's baby Zach uh, or baby Yoda <laughs> in the background. <laughs> uh, and this is somewhat relevant because 12-year-old me ready to become 
the coolest kid in sixth grade. That's that's pretty. If I had to guess about that very, workmanship, I would say Cody Mathis. Cody was Mathis behind that one. for sure gets the shout out there. Definitely <laughs> not not entirely what I looked like back then, but certainly the all the gear and everything. This is my reminder to everyone watching the show that school starts here in a few weeks, and that back to school madness that begins like that's that that's kind of like the blip in August. Yeah. <laughs> And at the end of July, so you got to watch out for it. All those school supplies, the computers, the electronics, everything kicks back into play. People going back to school, even their work-life balance, you know, changes in August. And so what that does is it creates a ton of freight. Those clothes that you see, people didn't have to buy clothes last year, Anthony. <laughs> Where were they going? They weren't going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> those clothes are coming back. Yeah. And that apparel, is, it matters again uh, as we start to go back to school, pending the Delta variant. And whatever mega, you know, COVID nightmare that COVID 2021, 2022 version of COVID. I don't know. Uh, hopefully that does not uh, happen. But we're in America. We've largely got it under control for the most part. Not so much in a lot of places across the world, uh, unfortunately. But so speaking about that clothes. And so that was going to be the other question we I was going to ask you about is the stamina of the U.S. consumer, because we've seen them just act on these purchasing urges. I mean, we have stimulus money that's been flowing through the economy. Of course, we also see credit card utilization at lows, um, uh, I guess revolving credit. Yeah, it would be considered revolving credit. Revolving credit is hitting lows that or is at a low that we haven't seen since 2017. People still have a lot of money. Retail sales, so as we mentioned earlier, bumped up 0.6% in the most recent report. And that surprising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Within that, we also saw retail sales for clothing, and so this was an area that you're talking about not too long ago, so or just a few seconds ago, and we see clothing and clothing accessories up 2.6 percent, boom, year over year. Now it's going to sound crazy because you said where were we going? What were we buying? Of course, year over year up 162 percent year over year. So and when I'm asking about stamina <laughs> yeah. for the U.S. consumer. We have more events really coming up, back to school season. And is that going to essentially lead us into the retail holiday season or just holiday season almost? Yeah, I think you're going to see, obviously, we're seeing that money transition. We were all worried about this trying to transition of freight, spend, like durable goods, which clothes, surprisingly, are non-durable goods. We've talked about that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, But it is freight. (laughs) It is freight. A lot of apparel moves on trucks out there. And I think you know, some of that DIY uh, stuff that was moving last year, starting to transition to things like this. It's yeah. not just services, but these are, I know they're non-durables, but that's another kind of societal flow. We're going to spend our money somewhere else. And it's just, it's still persisting in freight volumes out there. So speaking about that, building materials and guarding equipment, things like that, down 1.6%. Uh oh. So just like Dustin was talking about, yep. how they're starting to ease DIY stuff. We see that here in the U.S. Census Bureau um, uh, retail sales report as well. Yeah, carriers that move for you know limited brands. <laughs> yeah, uh, is that still a big uh, clothing apparel provider? Like expecting an uptick this year. Target that as a shipper and Home Depot, Lowe's. You know, probably go ahead and forecast a little bit of a downtick from year over year volumes. Yeah, I don't think that's unreasonable uh, to pull out there. So, yeah. Speaking of trees, though, Anthony Smith, I have one more meme of the week. Uh, And this one is sort of relevant to what a previous guest mentioned to us uh, a few weeks ago. 
and it's a cell phone tower disguised as a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought this was a good bridge uh, between the two. He, he, obviously, we were talking about, he, he said that one of the big commodities they were seeing shift right now were the components to the cell phone towers, 5G growing. This tree right here, obviously an imposter. It's not really a tree. <laughs> He's saying, what's up, my fellow trees? So anyway, photosynthesis, am I right? For those of you that are listening. <laughs> Trying to fit in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> obviously, check this out on the on the video feed if you get a chance, if you are listening to this. But it is, I, I got a chuckle out of it. Whenever I get a chuckle, kind of linking the lumber situation yeah. to the uh, electronic components. We're still seeing a lot of electronic components moving throughout the, the system. I think back to school, obviously, is going to help push that forward. We got Chromebooks and all sorts of things that kids are going to need for school. Uh, the electronic sector, how's that doing in the retail sector? The le electronic sector is still growing. So in the latest um, U.S. Census Bureau report for that, we're seeing that electronics in appliance stores up 3.3%. Surprisingly, still up 78% year over year. So would you look at that? Consumers are still buying stuff. Who would have thunk? Electronics at that. So, I mean, it's not like everything has changed. We're still yeah. in the process of kind of living our best life. Uh, and, and you, and you really got to pay attention to the economics of the situation. Exactly. Um, especially out there. So before we go, Anthony Smith, let's hear it. We've got a debate. We've got a debate of the day. Uh, and this came up actually on a call this week. Uh, and I just found it to be fascinating because I've thought about this over my career, my working tenure, and I think it's super relevant, especially as people are working more from home and vice versa. What does this mean? You know, what is your opinion on if you were to take, if you, if we were to transition into a four day work week, you know, again, one of the things that we've learned over the years is that you put people, you give people freedom from working, they're going to spend that money. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to build the economy a little bit more, especially in the consumer environment like we live in. Um, so if we were to, say, transition to a four-day work week, like the society, mm -hmm. not just you, <laughs> would you take Monday or Friday off? Zach, some people just want to see the world burn. <laughs> Tuesday. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, just no. take Tuesday off. Why do you want to take Tuesday? Have the weekend work Monday <laughs> is better than Wednesday, right? Oh my goodness. I thought I threw you a bone there. Better than Wednesday and Thursday. Work Tuesday. I, dude, you interrupted my flow, dude. <laughs> the entire flow. Tuesday is the most ridiculous day of the week. All right, all right. So, so what about this? So like, say you do, you work remotely on Monday. Does that, does that help the having Tuesday off? I do work remotely on Monday now. So the, look at that. You can have work remote Monday. It's not the same. You go on vacation Friday. It's not the same. Work remote no, no. Monday and then have Tuesday off. So here's the thing. And I, again, for my previous life, Monday was awful. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody comes into work. They're not quite cranking yet. Mm -hmm. I'm taking the Monday off because everybody's happy on Friday. I'm taking Friday off. I'm out. Oh, look at you. I'm out. He's done. If I can't do Tuesday, give me my Friday. I'm done with you. Download the FreightWaves TV <laughs> app. Thank you for watching. Check out all our podcasts on FreightCasts. Oh, goodness. Do we get Zach and Jinko jeans as a <laughs> meme? <laughs> <laughs> I want you a Jinko jeans. <laughs>